um, thank you for taking the time to join us this, this, uh, today, this morning, or whenever you're watching it. For our visitors here, um, thank you. Out of the hundreds of churches that are here in El Paso, thank you for, for choosing us this uh, Sunday morning. We hope that after today's uh, message, you will have been blessed. You know, I, you know, my heart here as a pastor of this church is that everyone, regardless of, of who you are, what your background is, what you've done, what you look like, you know, we're a small church with, with a big heart, and we welcome everyone here. It's not my place to change people, or it's not anyone's place to change people. God is who changes hearts and minds and attitudes and perspectives. And, and so, you know, again, we have the, the attitude of, of come as you are and allow God to, to do what he needs to do in your life. Um, you know, the other thing, too, about our church here is that, you know, we'll never push ourselves on you. Um, and, you know, we're, we're not flashy. We're not, I'm not a big charismatic speaker. Um, but you will receive the word of God here, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. All right, so with that, I'll go ahead and uh, begin with this morning's message. And I've titled it this morning, Moving Forward Through the Pain. Prior to this, uh, to this message, in chapter 18, David is distraught over the death of his son, Absalom. How is this affecting him personally? David's powerful sense of loss his deep cries of, my son, my son, is repeated five times in chapter 18, verse 33. And then we're going to see another three times in verse 4 of this chapter. And it reflects David's inconsolable attempt to fathom the loss. He seems to gather the past with all his own sins and those of his family into one defining moment of sorrow. When all is said and done, David is unable to resolve the incompleteness of his loss. Now, this also now is affecting everyone around him. Up until now, David has been on the other side of the Jordan in Mahanim, away from his home, and the city he founded, Jerusalem. Also, all the tribes, including David's own tribe of Judah, had participated in Absalom's rebellion in one way or another. But now it's become clear to everyone that Israel only has one king. It was time for them to bring him back to Jerusalem. But there's a problem. Bringing everyone together for a common cause wasn't going to be easy because of the years of intrigue and intertribal conflict. Those things had divided them. So by the time this short civil war was over, the people desperately needed a strong display of unity and loyalty. Well, today's chapter, chapter 19, will describe for us the five steps David took to bring about healing, the healing of the nation. And what we're going to see, too, is, is it, within those five steps, things that maybe we can apply into our own lives, whether it's, again, outside these church walls or within the church. There will be also a topic that many, many people, many Christians suffer from today, and that's the topic of depression. So my intent is to cover the entire chapter. I'm going to cover the entire chapter. I'm going to break it down into two sections. Um, but there's a possibility that, you know, uh, I may have to cover the second half next week because again there's a lot of information that I wanted to that I want to cover and I want to be fair to the text and I want to be also just give you as much as possible because I think the Lord has a lot to 
stay here. And I do believe that he has a special, something specific just for you. He wants to tell you something specifically just for you. So before we begin reading the first section here, let's pray and ask the Lord to to speak to us this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, it is absolutely an honor to be here today to worship you and now to hear and see your word. We want to just continue to glorify you with all our hearts and all our minds and all our strength, Lord. So help us to remove all distractions, anything that might get in the way of what it is that you want to tell us specifically, Lord. So use me as your instrument, use me as your tool, and broom again with your spirit, Lord. May lives be changed, and may hearts be transformed. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. 2 Samuel, chapter 19. 2 Samuel, chapter 19. And the Word of God says, It was reported to Joab, the king is weeping. Well, you know what? Actually, I'm going to back up just a couple of verses from to verse 18. In verse 18, the last couple of verses. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber above the city gate and wept. As he walked, he cried, My son Absalom, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Absalom, my son, my son. Chapter 19. It was reported to Joab, the king is weeping. He is mourning over Absalom. That day's victory was turned into mourning for all the troops because on that day the troops heard the king is grieving over his son. So they returned to the city quietly that day like troops come in when they are humiliated after fleeing in battle. But the king covered his face and cried loudly, My son, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went into the house to the king and said, Today you have shamed all your soldiers, those who have saved your life as well as your sons, your wives, and your concubines by loving your enemies and hating those who love you. Today you have made it clear that the commanders and soldiers mean nothing to you. In fact, Today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, it would be fine with you. Now get up, go out and encourage your soldiers, for I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will remain with you tonight. This will be worse for you than all the trouble that has come to you from your youth until now. So the king got up and sat in the, sat in the city gate and all the people were told, look, the king is sitting at the city gate. Then they all came into the king's presence. Meanwhile, each Israelite had fled to his tent. People throughout all the tribes of Israel were arguing among themselves, saying, the king has rescued us from the grasp of our enemies, and he saved us from the grasp of the Philistines. But now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, the man we anointed over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about restoring the king? King David sent word to the priest Zadok and Abiathar, say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to restore the king to his palace? The talk of all Israel has reached the king at his house. You are my brothers, my flesh and blood. So why should you be the last to restore the king? And tell Amasa, aren't you my flesh and blood? May God punish me and do so severely if you don't become uh, may God punish me and do so severely if you don't become commander of my army from now on instead of Joab. So he won over all the men of Judah and they unanimous, unanimously sent word to the king, "Come back, you and all your servants." Then the king returned. When he arrived at the Jordan, Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and escort him across the Jordan. Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet the king. There were a thousand, there were a thousand men from, the, from Benjamin with him. Ziba, the attendant from the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and 20 servants, also rushed down to the Jordan ahead of the king. 
They forwarded the Jordan to bring the king, the king's household across and to do whatever the king desired. When Shimei, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell face down before the king and said to him, My Lord, don't hold me guilty and don't remember your servant's wrongdoing on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king not take it to heart. For your heart, your servant knows that I have sinned. But look, today I am the first one of my entire house of, of the entire house of Joseph to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, son of Zeruiah, asked, Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed? David answered, Sons of Zeruiah, do we, do we agree on anything? Have you become my adversary today? Should any man be killed in Israel today? Am I not aware that today I am king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, You will not die. Then the king gave him this oath. And then the king gave him this oath. I'll stop there. The saintly Scottish pastor, Andrew Bonar, used to say, let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. His point being that it's possible to win the battle, but to lose the victory which is what happened to David after Joab had defeated Absalom and his army. What should have been a day of celebration and party and congratulations to each, congratulating each other um, for what they had accomplished at Mahanim, it, be, it became a, a confused time of embarrassment and shame as the people returned back to the city as if they had been humiliated by defeat. You see, from their perspective, in their eyes, they had risked their lives, they had risked their livelihood, they had risked their families for king and country. And rather than being celebrated, they found themselves being treated like criminals. Now, if you look back, some previous uh, previous chapters, you'll be able to see that David was often very appreciative and sensitive to the sacrifices his men made as they served him. But that day, on that day, he was so obsessed with the death of Absalom that he just couldn't think of anyone else. And by isolating himself from his men, the king turned a military victory into an emotional defeat. See, David wasn't just a great warrior, but he was also a deeply emotional poet and a musician. He could go from the depths of despair into the heights of glory in just one psalm. Now, we read in chapter 13 that David had experienced a difficult time after the death of Amnon. But now the death of his favorite son, Absalom, left him inconsolable. Now, his grief is understandable. I'm not saying he's, he shouldn't be feeling that way, but his attitude completely puzzled his followers who saw Absalom as a liar a murderer, a traitor, a rapist, and a rebel. And a rebel. Like I said, it's understandable for a father or a mother to grieve over the tragic death of a son and to overlook the terrible things they've done. But leaders still must lead, even if their hearts are broken. That's one of the prices that leaders must pay. On October 10th, 1950, Sir Winston Churchill was introduced at the University of Copenhagen as the architect of victory in World War II. Churchill replied, I was only the servant of my country and had I at any moment failed to express her unflinching resolve to fight and to conquer, I should at once have been rightly cast aside. 
David, the father, forgot that it was also David the king and that he still had a crown because his brave soldiers put the good of the nation ahead of their own personal interests. And instead of seeing this, David, his intense grief messed up his entire perspective. He only saw his boy Absalom and he couldn't and he could only feel the pain of losing him. He couldn't see what he had done to the nation and what the nation had become as a result of his actions. These were the darkest days in David's life. David was depressed. And I can say this from my own personal experience, from someone who has suffered through depression since the age of 11. There are times that I still struggle with it. There are times I still feel like I just don't want to get out of bed, that it's not worth it, that I just want to self-sabotage everything because life would be better off. Robin would be better off without me. My kids would be better off. But these, again, are, I understand, these are just my thoughts deceiving me. These are just lies from the devil. But also understand that depression is real. From my own personal experience, I believe that a Christian can, a born-again Christian can be depressed. To press the matter further, I believe a Christian can be, be depressed and not be in sin for experiencing depression. Yes, some depression is a result of sin. That is certainly the part of David's depression, certainly part of uh, David's depression. Some depression may itself be sin. That is, we may willfully choose to be depressed even though we know our depression is rooted in sin. But here's one thing that you will never, ever hear me say in this pulpit or whether I'm having a private conversation with you. And that is that depression is sinful in and of itself. Now, some of you watching, listening may disagree. But here, let me take it a step further. I believe that in the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord was experiencing a form of depression. Our Savior, you see, was 100% human. And like us, in that moment, he knew that the weight of the world was coming, was on him. He knew that he was going to be separated for a time from the Father. Like him, we can be depressed and not be in sin. David, I believe, was depressed. His, depress his depression may well have been played a part in his warped perspective and priorities. Now, the thing I wish you to notice in this text is that God spared David from death and gave him victory over Absalom in spite of the fact that he was depressed, in spite of the fact that David commanded his men not to harm Absalom. God's purposes and promises are not frustrated by our sin and most certainly not by our depression. These were days when these were days when David's faith and hope had to be at an all-time low. Did this keep David or did this keep God from achieving his purposes? Not for one moment. I point this out for a very important reason. There's a great deal of evangelical teaching. There's a, a lot of pastors out there, a lot of teachers out there who are saying and teaching and that uh, and thinking this, they're thinking that uh, or suggesting that God cannot work in the midst of our depression. 
the teaching of positive mental attitude. Or, you know, I, one I've been hearing a lot is, you know, projection, positive projection is, it's all over the place. It abounds in our day and age right now. If we have a positive outlook, good things are bound to come. But if we start to have negative thoughts, oh, then we're headed for trouble. You're headed for trouble. Don't even think it. Don't even feel it. Don't even touch it. Don't just stay away from it. That's what some people are actually teaching. Not just in the pulpit, but every day, like everyday Christians have that same mentality. They think that if we have, or if you have enough faith, God will accomplish great things for you. If we lack faith, if you lack faith, you deserve the suffering and sorrow. And those are the results. There are many things wrong with this viewpoint. We give ourselves far too much credit for God's blessings. We attribute God's blessings to our faith, our obedience, our positive mental attitude. But when depression comes, as it will undoubtedly will, that positive mental attitude, that positive projection is thrown out the window. It's forgotten about. Very often Christians hypocritically go around faking the presence of peace, joy, and faith because they're expected to have it. They're expected not to have a bad day. They're expected to always be happy and smiling. And, and yes, we have the joy of the Lord. We ought to remind ourselves of the joy of the Lord. There are days that are dark. There are times that are hard. Especially when you lose a loved one. Dark days will come. So being, we have to be authentic as believers, as Christians. If someone is asking you how your day is, I, yeah, it, it, I, I'm happy that you're telling me that you're blessed and you're happy and things are great. The Lord is, you know, but I'm not going to walk away from you if you tell me, you know what, I'm having a really hard time. I could barely get out of bed. I am hurting right now. As believers, as a Christian, and I'm just not talking about, you know, me as a, a, a pastor. I, it's yeah, I have a responsibility to do that. But as Christians, as brothers and sisters, we ought to help each other out in those times, encourage one another, take each other's burdens, pray for one another, remind them there's a they have a there's a purpose, there's a reason why God has them around. But as believers. We shouldn't be ashamed or embarrassed to say we're having a bad day. You should tell, especially tell your husband or your wife that you're not doing well. I had a great discussion with my wife yesterday and I was talking about my own depression, my fears about my depression rearing itself up again and destroying everything that the Lord has done the past 10 years, 11, 12 years, and how dangerous it is if I'm not careful to go back into that mindset of things would be better off. She would be better off without me. This world would be better off without me. And then to get into that, forgetting about, you know, again, what the Lord has done and how he's delivered me from alcoholism and and just go back to that to cope and then you know it's just self-sabotaging my life so we talked about that for a while and you know we came to the conclusion both of us her not giving up on the marriage and me not falling into that state as we have to just trust in the lord we have to hold on to the lord we can't keep our eyes. We have to stay focused on him. That's the only way we'll get through this every single day. 
have to hold on to the Lord. And if you must, just every moment, every hour, every minute, hold on to him. So you won't get in that place, in that dark, dark place. At this point in his life, David didn't have peace, joy, or great faith. And like I said, he was at the lowest point of his life, and yet God fulfilled his promises. He fulfilled his, his purposes and promises in spite, of, in spite of David's mental state. He provided many friends who stood with David in this difficult time. God used Hushai to frustrate the counsel of, of Ahithophel. He used Joab to eliminate Absalom and rebuke David. God worked in David's life not because he was full of faith, joy, and hope at the moment, but because he was faithful to fulfill, because he was faithful to fulfill his promises. Now, I want to take, again, this matter of depression one step further. Another step forward. Many times when one is depressed, the perspective gets warped. They do not see life accurately. But there's also a sense in which depression may help us see life more clearly. Are we overly confident in our own efforts, our own righteousness, our own faith? Depression will wipe out all such self-confidence. Many of those who are confident, most joyful and happy, most successful are deceived about the source of their abilities and of their, and of their successes. David saw life less clearly at the pinnacle of his success than he did in the depths of his humiliation. David didn't trust in himself in his despair. All he could do was to cast himself upon God, resting and hoping in him. I've said that God was very much at work in David's life in the midst of his depression. Now let me go on to say that God was very much at work through David in the midst of his depression. Now, I can't prove this conclusively, but I would, I would imagine that a number of David's psalms were written in the slow of despondency. In the midst of depression, you read many of those psalms, you can feel the pain, the hurt, the depression. They were written, many of them were written in a time of despair. As David expresses his fears, his despair, his depression to God, he finds hope and help in remembering the God in whom he speaks. And in the process of writing those Psalms, David has also ministered to many others in despair. These Psalms have ministered to me during those low times as well. It's often from our times of mourning and sorrow that we begin to see life more clearly, to trust in God more completely. If this is the case, then suffering and sorrows and even depression may be our friend and not our enemy. Anything which draws us more closely to God is our friend. I'm certain that as I'm saying this, there are a lot of people, I'm speaking to a lot of people out there who may be depressed. Some of you may not even know it, and you may be even reluctant to admit it. And this may be because you've been told that depression is a sin, and that you, and you don't wish to be guilty of sinning in this way. But many of you are depressed and know that you are. Many of you are depressed and ashamed to tell anyone else about it. Let me simply say to you that God worked in David's life in spite of his depression. God also worked through David's life because of his depression. 
and He can work through your life as well, through your depression, in spite of your depression. He can still use you. He can still minister to you. He can still send you out and talk to people about the gospel. But you got to draw near to him. you got to hear him. The only way of doing that is getting into his word during those times. Hard as it is, because, again, you're not going to want to feel, feel like getting into the Bible or reading anything that it says. But those are the times you have to get into it. Those are the times you have to read the word of God. Because his words are life. His words will give you exactly what you need. Will quench that thirst that you so desperately need. If you're suffering from depression, let somebody know. If you feel like you can't talk to anyone, call me. And let me know. We can talk through it. I can't do that. Then I will give you resources where you can speak to someone, where you, you know, professional resources, professional people who can talk to you. But you're not alone. People care about you. You're loved. And your life has meaning and purpose. The Lord created you for a very special reason. And in his eyes, you're beautiful. You're worthy. He sent his son to die for you. He sent his son to die for you. That's worthy. You can do a lot for him. He can do a lot in your life. So, please, reach out to somebody. Now, back to our story. Now, in order to bring about the healing of the nation, I mentioned in the beginning that he, he took five steps. The first step here now is that he had to, David had to realign his perspective. Joab, his commander, military commander, knows this, and so he takes on the role of the realist, who essentially slap David back into reality without trying to talk him out of his grief. He does this by rebuking the king for placing his grief, the grief, his grief of his deceased, rebellious son above the concern of those who had just fought for him, laid down their lives for him. So he basically tells David in verse 7 that if he doesn't go out, if he doesn't go out and encourage the people immediately, his political problems, his issues are going to be much more worse than anything he has ever experienced before. David heard him. He was smart enough to hear him. He was smart enough to hear the advice of his military commander and took the advice. He got up, sat at the city gate where his men came to him and where he acknowledged their brave service. Now, more than likely, David still didn't have any idea that it was actually Joab who engineered Absalom's death and burial. Otherwise, if he knew about it, he would have just ignored him and would have kept on with his depression. But as we'll see when we get to chapter one, well, as we'll see, it didn't take David to find out what Joab and his men did uh, was a big contributing factor when he made a decision to replace him for Amasa as a general of the army. Now, the only thing missing in the entire Absalom episode is David seeking the mind of the Lord as he made decisions. When David was younger, I covered this a little bit last week, he would call for the, Ur, the Urim and the Thummim, or ask for the counsel of a prophet. But other than his prayer, 
in chapter 15, verse 31, we don't find David requesting guidance. Of course, the wilderness psalms record his concerns and prayers. So we know that he wasn't depending on himself and his readers alone. But we wish we had, we wish David had sought God's direction as he dealt with Absalom and the problems that he created. When it came to dealing with his sons, David needed all the help he can get, but perhaps he wouldn't admit it. It's never too late for God to work. The next step David took was to bring the nation together, to bring the nation together, was to strive for unity. See, when David finally did arrive in Jerusalem, it was a signal to the nation that the rebellion was over and their true king was back on the throne. However, on his way there, David made some royal decisions that sent out other important messages to the people. His first message was that he wanted his kingdom to be a united people. The old prejudices and animosities must be buried and the nation must be united behind its king. He understood that the people were divided between those who followed Absalom and those who had followed him. Not only that, but the old division between the ten tribes of Israel and uh, Judah, or the ten tribes of that of Israel and Judah, still persisted. So, he decided, he made the choice again to begin this process by going to his own familial people, the tribe of Judah. See, in a perfect situation, the leaders from all the 12 tribes would have come together and sent a formal invitation to David to return and reign. But because of party squabbles, tribal friction, nothing was done, and no one took the lead. David knew that the trouble would only increase if he waited too long, too long to gain the, his city and his throne. So he stopped waiting and just marched ahead. After all, the truth of the matter, the fact is that he was God's anointed king and didn't need a call for a referendum before taking up his fallen scepter. Now, since Judah was the royal tribe and because David was from the tribe of Judah and his capital city was in Judah and since it was the elders of Judah who had first made him king in chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 he logically first he turned first to them for help using his two priests as intermediaries David told the elders of Judah that, he, that the Israelites and all the other tribes we're talking about returning the king to Jerusalem. But his own tribe, his own people remained silent. They didn't respond back to him. They didn't say, yeah, we agree, and we're, they abstained. They didn't say yes or no. Stayed quiet. See, he figured that since Absalom had begun his rebellion in Hebron, which was in Judah, then the, then the elders of Judah must have cooperated with him. If so, then now it was time. It's now time that they displayed their allegiance to David, their rightful king. So that's why he went to them first. Another executive decision David made was to replace Joab with Amasa as his top general of the army. Now the news of this a new appointment would have shocked the leaders of the nation. But the more they thought about it, I'm sure they they would have also, it probably also brought them great relief. Because it meant that David was pardoning all the officials who rejected him. See, Amasa had been Absalom's top general, whose assignment it was to search for David and to destroy him. But now David was making his nephew and Joab's cousin the leader the new leader of his great army. But why replace Joab? Why that big move? 
Well, for one thing, by now David must have learned that Joab had disobeyed his orders and had killed Absalom. See, even though he deserved death, Absalom could have been taken alive and brought to David to be dealt with later. Joab had no right nor the authority to defy the king and act as judge and executioner. So if Joab had the gall to kill the king's son, the question is, would he have the gall to do the same to the king himself? And this brings up a second reason. David replaced Joab. Chapter 21 tells us that Joab had been gradually increasing his authority ever since David had been told to stop waging his own personal wars. Since then, Joab had, been, had gained a reputation for winning battles and killing important people. His, popula his popularity would have elevated him as the likely candidate to replace David, which would have caused another huge headache. And yet, another reason may have been that Joab knew all about the murder of Uriah. And perhaps this piece of information carried more power than the sword. It could have been a number of other reasons. But the bottom line was that when he killed Absalom, Joab went too far. And David saw this as an opportunity to get rid of his power-hungry general. Amasa had led the rebel army. So by appointing him to Joab's position, David united the army and declared an amnesty to all the rebel soldiers, giving the nation a new beginning. So as the other tribes debated and delayed, the, the men of Judah united behind David with all their hearts, and they sent him an official invitation to return home. Thus David went down to the Jordan near Gilgal, and the men of Judah met him there. The first place Israel camped after Joshua, now this was, clarify for a second, this was the first place Israel camped after Joshua had led them across the Jordan. Gilgal was, Gilgal was less than 20 miles from Jerusalem and a key city in Jewish history. There, according to Joshua chapter 3, verse 5, the males of the new generation entered into a covenant with, with God and were circumcised. And it was at Gilgal that Samuel renewed the covenant with Saul when Saul became king in 1 Samuel chapter 11. Now the text doesn't state, state it, but perhaps David also renewed the covenant at Gilgal and assured the people that God was still on the throne and his word was still in force. Perhaps it was a time of dedication for the king. For throughout the rest of the book, we see David very much in charge. The third thing we see here that David did to unite the nation was his declaration again of general amnesty. Not only were the men of Judah at the Jordan to welcome David, but his enemy Shimei, the Benjamite was there with a thousand men from his tribe. And if you remember the story again, when David was leaving Jerusalem, Shimei was there kicking up dirt, kicking up dirt balls and cursing at him and saying all kinds of terrible things to him. And David did nothing. Just let him be. Ziba, the land manager for Mephibosheth, was also in the crowd with his 15 sons and 20 servants. And they crossed the river to meet him on the western shore to help escort him to the other side. Some, somebody provided a ferry boat that went back and forth across the Jordan to carry the king's household so that, so that he wouldn't have to ford the river. Now, when David arrived at the western bank of the river, Shimei prostrated himself and begged for mercy. There's no doubt that Shimei deserved to be killed for the way he treated David. And Abishai, one of his commanders, was willing to do the job. But David stopped his nephew, just as he had done before in chapter 16, verse 9. 
The first time David stopped Abishai, his reason was the Lord had told Shimei to curse the king. So David would take his, so David took his abuse, took Shimei's abuse as if it was, as it was coming from the hand of the Lord. But now his reason for sparing Shimei was that because it was a day of rejoicing, not a day of revenge. But even more, by pardoning Shimei, King David was offering a general amnesty to all who supported Absalom during the rebellion. David kept his word, didn't have Shimei killed for his crime. But when David, but when David was about to die, he warned Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, to keep an eye on Shimei. In that story, Solomon put him under house arrest and told him not to leave Jerusalem. But when Shimei disobeyed the king, he was captured and executed. Shimei had a weakness for resisting authority and treating God's appointed ministers with disdain. And that's why David cautioned his son, his son Solomon about him. He didn't appreciate David's mercy or Solomon's grace. And his independence and arrogance finally caught up with him. As it one day will catch up to every single believer who arrogantly believes they don't need God. Who arrogantly believes they're the God of their own lives. There are people out there who know the story, know the truth, and yet they purposely reject it. They purposely say, no, I don't have time. Yeah, I know what the Bible says about salvation. I know what, what I need to do, but you know what? I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. Let me tell you something. That's you. One day, you're going to be held accountable for every single thing you've said and done in this entire life. And the only thing that will spare you, the only thing that will he will see is whether or not you're covered by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And if you're not, you're going to be taken aside and thrown into hell where it's just eternal suffering, eternal separation from God. Of course, God doesn't want that for your life. He does want to have that communion with you. With you. He does want to have that relationship that has been broken because of sin. But you must recognize your arrogance, your pride, your sinfulness, and come to Him with a broken heart. Come to Him with a sincere heart and ask him to forgive you. And you know what? We have such a gracious and merciful God that he will. He will forgive you no matter how bad that sin is, no matter how bad you've sinned, no matter how bad you think you've blown it. We'll forgive you. And so you've heard this message and you feel like, man, I do see now that Jesus is the only way. You've tried everything. You've tried to fill that void that you have in your heart with whatever it may be, gambling, pornography, drugs, alcohol, and none of it's filled it. None of it has given you, none of it has given you the satisfaction. None of it has given you, has, has filled that empty hole in your heart will allow Jesus to come into your heart now. Allow him to make his home in you. Allow him to change your life, to change your perspective, to give you a fresh vision of him, other people, this world. And you know what? I guarantee you because God I, I know God and I know what he's done in my life and the lives of others he will do that trust in him obey him and if that's something you'd like to do 
I want to lead you to the cross and lead you in a prayer to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So wherever you're at, wherever you may be, whether it's here or online or hearing this message online, where it may be um, at home or if you're driving, please, you know, I would recommend you pulling over the, the side of the road. But I, I want you to close your eyes and bow your head and pray this with all sincerity, with all your heart. Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. And I now ask you to forgive me. I believe that you died for my sins and that you rose from the grave three days later. I now repent and turn from my sins and confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for dying for me. I now ask you to fill me with the Holy Spirit so that he may help guide me in my new born-again life. In your name, amen. Ladies and gentlemen, if you pray that, welcome to the family of God. You've been forgiven, you've been washed clean. And the angels, there are angels in heaven right now celebrating that a sinner has now been saved. That one person has been delivered from the shackles of death, of sin, and they've been redeemed. You're no longer a slave to the devil, to the schemes of the devil, to, to death. You can be assured, if you pray that with all your heart, that if you were to die today, you'd be face to face with the Lord. So, if that's the case, if you prayed that, let us know. We want to uh, lead you into your next steps of your Christian walk. We send you a Bible, or you know, if, maybe if you're not here in the area, you know, maybe uh, recommend a good church, a Bible teaching church where you can go to. But um, if you are here in the area, you know, we want to definitely welcome you here and remember that depression is not a sin. The Lord cares for you, loves you, and has a plan for you. Don't think to yourself there's no purpose, there's no reason for living. As hard as it is, there are times you have to get up out of bed and just go. Keep moving. Keep moving forward through the pain. Thank you again. I hope you have a great week. Be blessed. And we look forward to, to ministering to you next week. Love you. Goodbye.